0: rama chaloka sampati Katanjaliya-iwaram-ayachata Santi dasata-parajaka-jatnatika say se tutamam anukampi mampa Tasa sama namo tasa bhagavato rahato sammasambutasa Namo tasa bhagavato rahato sammasambutasa Namo tasa bhagavato <coughs> um, sorry, I was a bit out of commission earlier on today Sickness being what it was I uh, am of the nature to uh, become sick I have not yet gone beyond the illness But um, temporarily but beyond illness As uh, as we get into the heart of the retreat, one of the similes that used to come to mind to me a lot was um, a simile of playing music, in free jazz. If you um, if you've ever seen a, a, a free jazz musician play. You know, someone like Cecil Taylor or someone uh, of his caliber. Uh, to the untrained mind, it can seem a bit like um, a lot of weird noise, but uh, it's a bit like um, some expressionist artist. But I've known free jazz musicians, and I know the kind of effort. Uh, that they put in to achieve that level of freedom they may spend 12 hours a day every day regularly for decades playing scales playing repetitive exercises just really putting in the hours and then with that kind of foundation, with that kind of basis, then you can get up there and play free jazz. And so meditation practice or dhamma practice is a bit like that. There's a lot of, of time that is just put in, invested, and in staying with your breath. You know, There's, there's nothing wrong with, wrong with counting your breaths. It doesn't matter how many years you've been meditating just stick with the basics if you, you know, if you find that your mind's not with your breath all the time then just count your breaths breathing in one breathing out one breathing in two breathing out two and if you lose your place then start over again work your way up to 10 and go back to the beginning count again so Doing very simple repetitive exercises, they pay off in the end and you can't really play the free jazz of Dhamma without investing the time in doing the scales of meditation. On a rainy day, it seems like a good day to maybe just tell a few more stories. But especially when I first got into Dhamma practice, um, musical similes uh, came up a lot. I could see the parallels quite a bit because uh, I had been a musician prior to that, and. Interestingly enough, just, just recently I've been back to my 25th college reunion, and um, you know, for people who knew me at the time, there had been a few changes. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I mean, I was, uh, I was kind of a musician on campus, and, and, uh, and then I gave up music completely you know, from being like one of the main things of my life to giving it up. And uh, I had longer hair. <laughs> <laughs> I gave that up. And I was kind of sociable on campus, visible, and, um, and then s- opted for years of solitude. And uh, and I liked girls, you know. And, <laughs> and I wasn't celibate. And then you know, end up leading the life as a monk. So for the for those uh, people who knew me back then, you know, I, people were very curious. And actually, they they ended up. You know, the reason I went was because they. Asked me to give a presentation on what I've been doing for the last 25 years. Uh, Funny enough, yeah, I couldn't believe the the number of people who came up to me and said, You haven't changed a bit. (laughs) (laughs) What are you talking about? (laughs) Everything's different. Yeah, it was interesting just to see where people were at after 25 years. One thing that came up was, um, you know, people have been through so much, you know, by the time we reach middle age, there's a whole range of experiences and... Uh, And one of the things that I noticed uh, a lot coming up when speaking with people was uh, the certain people who had had difficulty over the period of time, they'd either worked through it or were still working through it. There was a real uh, wish to somehow be able to alleviate other people's suffering. And a feeling of um, being limited, kind of wishing I could do more, but just being very limited in and, and what I could do. And this was it's a bit like the equanimity that I was talking about before, that you know, everyone's living and experiencing the results of their own karma and then there's a limited amount we can do to relieve the suffering of other people. Tired enough to relieve our own suffering sometimes. When I had uh, left in college that's when I started to get into meditation and at that time uh, there weren't really any monasteries around the United States there were a lot of uh, part-time meditation centers and the more I did the more I got into it the more long-term retreats that I did, the more uh, that seemed that that was uh, uh, a worthy thing to aspire to, a worthy thing to devote my time to, although at the time I didn't really know where I was going. There was a sense of just trusting, the kind of trust that I was talking about, which is really helpful in making decisions in life. always seem to be a lot of forks in the road. Uh, should we go do this or should we do that? Should we do something traditional or something untraditional? There's always a lot of decisions to be made, but to make accurate decisions, well, often it's kind of out of our control. There's a certain momentum of things that are are flowing along. and. Uh, Often what what we can best do is to just get out of the way and allow it to happen. And it felt a bit like that when I was in my early twenties, not really knowing where this Dhamma practice was going to take me. Uh, Certainly in the beginning, no idea that I would end up as a monk, although it seemed like a nice thing for other people to do. But, um, you know, it was just very, very, very uh, gradually that that idea uh, started um, to become more a reality, a possibility, something that I could do. But really, it was, you know, whatever was happening in terms of lifestyle or external changes, uh, it was more just a, a general... wishing to do something beneficial with my life you know, and that's something we can all do and it doesn't really matter that much how it manifests uh, I mean most people are not going to end up being monks and nuns and and I think that's normal and fine but the Dhamma practice um, even though we, we may not know exactly where it's taking us, there are certain things that we can tap into and just uh, trust our heart and it feels right, it feels good, it feels like this is um, leading in a beneficial direction, or we can see that it's beneficial to us and it's beneficial to others. Even if it's just very basic things like being kind and generous, being helpful or the aspiration to be peaceful the aspiration to be you know, wise and the aspiration that um, by the time that we die that we'll be able to die in peace without fear But eventually life took me to Asia and uh, did a long retreat in Thailand and then traveled around Asia and um, the seed uh, for wanting to practice the Dhamma full time intensively was, was really starting to, to take root a bit. And, and grow and uh, and I kept doing more retreats and retreats are great you know but they always end and uh, and especially in those days you know I had a lot of uh, energy for the retreats I wouldn't say it was easy my, you know my first experiences were very painful you know, there was a lot of physical pain, and my mind was anything but concentrated. You know, there, would, The first Zen sashin that I did, I didn't spend a whole lot of time in the present moment, for sure, but it was like I had relived every memory <laughs> of my entire life um, things that I had long ago forgotten about, the little weird details. Like uh, living a whole entire life again. But uh, it seemed that um, there was a lot of potential there. And that whatever little tiny bit of the Buddhist teachings that I was starting to come in contact with it just seems like well that was just the tip of the iceberg and there was just so much there uh, potentially to develop. So in the end it did take me to a monastery and at that time Ajahn Chah was still alive and I found a monastery in Thailand where the training was very traditional but it was set up just for non-Thais so we had people from all around the world there and all the teaching was in English the abbot was Canadian at that time Ajahn Chah was already very sick so he was no longer teaching but still once a week uh, our whole Sangha would get in the back of this great big truck pile in and drive over to Ajahn Chah's Monastery and he was in uh, a little, a special kuti, a monastic dwelling which had been set up for him, it was like a little hospital room and they would bring him out the first in a wheelchair and the whole community was going to go for two months and at the time, you know, it sounded like a pretty exciting thing to do <coughs> and, you know, pretty, uh, pretty cool actually and I was, you know, both of us you know, we were really hoping that we would be allowed to go with, but we were kind of afraid to ask to go we with, because all the monks were going and uh, they were just going to go into this really uh, thick jungle on the border with Thailand and Burma, and just live there in the forest with their umbrellas and mosquito nets uh, and uh, and just meditate there. And it was a place that the abbot had visited when he was um, a wandering monk on what we call Tudong, which is just kind of wandering finding places in nature to meditate or visiting teachers. And he had spent some time there when he was younger and then had the idea to bring the whole community out there and live in the jungle for a while. And it was a wild place. Uh, to our happiness he asked us to go. and. Uh, worked out really well, although it was—I can—I can say that white is not really the good color <laughs> to, to wear in the jungle. We found out, and uh, was our our ropes were not very white when we came out two months later. But it was uh, a fantastic experience. Um, but, you know, literally, we would just go in and, and live right on the, the ground there. There were some uh, a few local people there that would maybe um, make a very simple space on the ground or um, maybe take some bamboo and, and, you know, slice it and open it up. And so you had something sort of like a... I mean, it was just (laughs) lying on bamboo. um, And all we had was uh, this umbrella and mosquito net. And uh, it was up in the hills and in the mountains, and it was pretty cold at night. And the monks, I mean, they had this robe and they had an outer robe, but as Anigarkas, we didn't have anything, except a little, you know, lower robe and a little anksa, huh, a little cloth over the chest and, God, we were freezing, absolutely freezing at night. And, you know, I would take that cover, you know the bowl has a cover on it, and I would take that cover off at night and put it over my head, it was so cold. But there was something so very, very authentic about that because we were all living widely dispersed through this jungle and this high valley. And then you know, around dawn, you know, we just go by the sun and we could see when, when, the, when it was starting to get light. And then uh, we had all kind of come down and have a meeting spot and we'd meet there, put our robes on, were there with our bowls, and then, uh, single file, we'd go down into this little village of bamboo huts with grass roofs. And there was something just so um, beautiful about that. There was this golden sun coming through, and uh, it was just like you know, I kept thinking, this must be just of what it must have been like in the time of the Buddha. And this little group of huts was uh, just some uh, people from Burma who would come over and kind of living on the Thai side. And they were just you know so uh, excited to have <laughs> all these monks all at once. And so uh, every hut, every family, pretty much every person would come out and, and put something in our bowls and go back and have the meal and then go back to our space but uh you know i I really liked being out in the forest, but there I had to admit you know a fear came up sometimes because there there were some big things moving around at night (laughs) and you know there were elephants around and when they feed they make a huge racket and we knew there were tigers around although we didn't see any Um, we saw a lot of snakes and we were right in the ground so there's not a whole lot of protection The uh, actually, the only real encounter, bad encounter I had with wild animals at that trip was uh, one night I woke up and I had this feeling of like my body was on fire. And I realized my my body was covered with biting ants, was, you know, these red biting ants, and they'd gotten into everything. You know, my clock, my my body, everything, and um, of course we're on, in white robes, we're on eight precepts, so you can't just kill them. <laughs> so it's like, like ah, my body's on fire. Just like okay, just very compassionately pick them off <laughs> in the middle of the night. Uh, Uh, those things are good to do when you're young (laughs) it was great at the time The first meditation master that I really went to stay with was a disciple of Ajahn Chah, named Ajahn Piek. And when I first went to stay with him, he was only forty years old and not yet famous. I mean, now he's very famous and he's in his sixties, but at that time it was only sort of like the inner circle. You know, there'd only been one other. Western monk had gone to stay with him and he came back and said that's the place to go and uh, so I asked just before my first range retreat I asked uh, the abbot if it would be alright I went to stay with him and fortunately he agreed and you know speaking of the jungle the year previous to me going there he had taken a group out To stay in one of the national parks, and kind of the same same type of thing, where people stay in in uh, in, uh, the spread out areas, far enough apart that there's a sense of solitude. But Ajahn Piyek was the type who he had the very rare ability to read the minds. Uh, understand uh, the minds of other beings not just other human beings but also the animals so for him going out into the jungle was pretty interesting because he could be reading the minds of the elephants and reading the minds of the king cobras and reading the minds of the tigers and apparently some of the larger animals you know, they have... Um, they're not dumb you know, they actually have a, some intelligence and they certainly have personalities. And some of the larger ones even have a primitive psychic power that they can kind of send their mental energy out and it helps them hunt. Like a, like a, a king cobra, for example, or a tiger can kind of take its mental energy, its mind, and send it out and, and kind of scout out. You know, where there's something to eat. And so he was watching all of this, but then he was noticing that tigers in the area were getting really agitated. And then he tried to look, you know, why are the tigers getting agitated? And uh, then he went to see what each of his monk disciples were doing. and. You know, this one was practicing, this one was practicing meditation, this one was, you know, nice and calm. And then, but then there was one monk who was sitting there out in the forest, really worried about tigers. And uh, thinking, well, if a tiger comes, then you know, I'm going to beat it over the head. Mm-hmm. And I'm gonna, uh, or I'm uh, going to border with Burma. And the whole community was going to go. For two months. And at the time, you know, it sounded like a pretty exciting thing to do. <laughs> and, you know, pretty, um, pretty cool, actually. And I was, you know, both of us, you know, we were really hoping that we would be allowed to go with, but we were kind of afraid to ask to go we with, because all the monks were going. And uh, they were just going to go into this really uh, thick jungle on the border with Thailand and Burma and just live there in the forest with their umbrellas and mosquito nets and uh, and just meditate there. And it was a place that the abbot had visited when he was um, a wandering monk on what we call Tudong, which is just kind of wandering, finding places in nature to meditate or visiting teachers. And he had spent some time there when he was younger and then had the idea to bring the whole community out there and live in the jungle for a while. And it was a wild place. Uh, To our happiness he asked us to go and uh, worked out really well. Although it was, I can I can say that white is not really the good color <laughs> to, to wear in the jungle. We found out, and um, was our our ropes were not very white when we came out two months later. But it was uh, a fantastic experience. Um, but, you know, literally we would just go in and, and live right on the, the ground there. There were some, uh, a few local people there that would maybe um, make a very simple space on the ground or um, maybe take some bamboo and, and, you know, slice it and open it up. And so you had something sort of like a bed. I mean, it was (laughs) just lying on bamboo. um, And all we had was uh, this umbrella and mosquito net. And uh, it was up in the hills and in the mountains and it was pretty cold at night. And the monks, I mean they had this robe and they had an outer robe, but as Anigarkas, we didn't have anything, except a little, you know, lower robe and a little unsa, huh, a little cloth over the chest, and God, we were freezing, absolutely freezing at night, and, you know, I would take that cover, you know, the bowl has a cover on it, and I would take that cover off at night and put it over my head, it was so cold. But there was something so very, very authentic about that, because we were all living widely dispersed through this jungle and this high valley, and then around dawn, we would just go by the sun, and we could see when when it was starting to get light, and then uh, we had all kind of come down and have a meeting spot and we'd meet there, put our robes on, we there with our bowls, and then uh, single file we'd go down into this little village of bamboo huts with grass roofs. And there was something just so um, beautiful about that. Was this golden sun coming through and uh, it was just like you know, I kept thinking this must be just of what it must have been like in the time of the Buddha. And this little group of huts was uh, just some uh, people from Burma who would come over and kind of living on the Thai side. And they were just, you know, so uh, excited to have <laughs> all these monks all at once. And so every hut, every family, pretty much every person would come out and, and put something in our We'd go back and have the meal and then go back to our space. But, uh, you know, I, I really liked being out in the forest, but there I had to admit, you know, a fear came up sometimes because there were some big things moving around at night (laughs) and you know there were elephants around and when they feed they make a huge racket and we knew there were tigers around although we didn't see any Um, we saw a lot of snakes and we were right in the ground so there's not a whole lot of protection The uh, Actually, the only real encounter, bad encounter I had with wild animals at that trip was uh, one night I woke up and I had this feeling of like my body was on fire and I realized my, my body was covered with biting ants, you know, you know, these red biting ants and they'd gotten into everything. You know, my clock, my, my body, everything. And, um, of course, we're on, in white robes, we're on eight precepts. So you, <laughs> you can't just kill them. <laughs> so it's like, like, ah, my body's on fire. <laughs> just like, okay, just very compassionately. Just pick them off. <laughs> in the middle of the night, you know. Uh, Those things are good to do when you're young, (laughs) it was great at the time. The first meditation master that I really went to stay with was a disciple of Ajahn Chah named Ajahn Piak. And when I first went to stay with him, he was only forty years old and not yet famous. I mean now he's very famous and he's in his sixties. But at that time it was only sort of like the inner circle. You know, there'd only been one other Western monk had gone to stay with him, and he came back and said, that's the place to go. And uh, so I asked, you know, just before my first rains retreat, I asked uh, the abbot if it would be all right I went to stay with him. And fortunately, he agreed. And, you know, speaking of the jungle, the year previous to me going there, he had taken a group out and uh, to stay in one of the national parks, and kind of the same, same type of thing where people stay in, in, uh, in uh, the spread out areas far enough apart that there's a sense of solitude. But Brajan Pieek was the type who, he had the very rare ability to read the mind's uh, understand uh, the minds of other beings. Not just other human beings, but also the animals. So for him, going out into the jungle was pretty interesting. Because he could he'd be reading the minds of the elephants, and be reading the minds of the king cobras, and reading the minds of the tigers. And apparently, some of the larger animals, they have, um, they're not dumb. You know, they actually have a, some intelligence, and they certainly have personalities, and some of the larger ones even have a primitive psychic power that they can kind of send their mental energy out, and it helps them hunt, like a, like a, a king cobra, for example, or a tiger can kind of take its mental energy, its mind, and send it out and, and kind of scout out you know, where there's something to eat. And so he was watching all of this, but then he was noticing the tigers in the area were getting really agitated. And then he, he, he tried to look, you know, why are the tigers getting agitated? And uh, then he went to see what each of his monk disciples were doing. and. You know, this one was practicing. This one was practicing meditation. This one was you know, nice and calm. And then, but then there was one monk who was you know, sitting there out in the forest, really worried about tigers, and thinking, well, if a tiger comes, then you know, I'm going to beat it over the head, and I'm going to, uh, or I'm going to, you know, bite it off, or you know, it's kind of a bit of fear and uh, thoughts of um, how he would defend himself if he was going to be attacked by a tiger. and Just that much was enough for the tigers to get very restless, because they're very sensitive. And when you live out in the jungle like that, boy, you really become sensitive. there was, um, there was a, a time that I, about seven years later, I went back to the same place on the Burmese border and was just living there alone for a couple of months uh, and would only rarely see other people. But um, just the energy of being in the jungle and the solitude of being there Boy, it doesn't take very long, you just get really tuned in and it's like um, there's whole parts of the human brain that we that we don't really use in modern society that start to come into play in a situation like that of a refined intuition. So anyways and at this time Ajahn Biak then had to go to this monk. And he said, if you're out in the forest, then it's important to practice loving kindness because the animals are very sensitive and they'll pick up on your vibes. I don't think he said vibes, <laughs> <laughs> but they'll pick up on the state of mind. And so if if we're out there and we've got fear coming up then they'll pick up on that and that makes them nervous, makes them agitated and potentially dangerous and so to whatever degree possible then when we go out into the forest try to be there with a a peaceful state of mind in fact um, many of the meditation masters, you know, would recommend that when we go out into the forest, when we first go out, we then ask permission from all of the other beings who live there, whether they're animals or whether they may be you know, unseen devas or heavenly beings who live there, because really we're going into their home, and then. Uh, it's good to go with the intention of being a humble guest to go off into the jungle you know, and uh, and you know either verbally or, or silently you know, make this um, explanation and uh, ask permission from all the beings who live in that area uh, you know, uh, I've come here uh, practice meditation for a few weeks or a few months and I'd like to ask your permission to stay here and I've come peacefully and my intention is to live harmoniously with all the beings here Uh, may you please grant me permission to do so and somehow just that uh, that mental determination It helps. It helps. Uh, Like the beings in the area tend to, as they say, be very sensitive and they can pick up on that. I was telling John, I get really tired of telling the same old stories year after year, because I only have one tiger story. (laughs) But that, that same year that I was living there alone in this jungle on the Burmese border, um, it was just full of wild animals. I mean at night time, it was difficult for me to sleep at night because there was so much activity. Just troops of monkeys swinging through the trees, and, and um, just most of the stuff was happening at night. Most of the stuff I couldn't see, you know, which is <laughs> interesting practice as well, when you you don't know what it is. Um, but there was one there was one time I'd come back from Alms round and I was sitting there with my bowl full of food and and I hadn't begun eating yet. But I saw this uh, kind of figure, which I thought was a dog, just kind of moving through the jungle on the hillside, and, and it disappeared, and then I heard kind of a bit of rustling, and then uh, and then, uh, just right out of the brush, a couple of yards away from me, this big bear appeared, big Asian bear, and uh, he's looking at my bowl full of food. <laughs> And, you know, I'm looking at my bowl full of food, (laughs) you know, and uh, we only have one meal a day and I'm not going to give it up that easily. (laughs) So there was a feeling of, actually at the time, uh, I think there was more feeling of mutual curiosity on both of our parts. I didn't have time to be afraid because it was just so like, oh, wow. There's a bear (laughs) right next to me. And I think he was feeling the same thing. He kind of popped his head out, and suddenly there's, oh, there's a human. (laughs) (laughs) We looked at each other. (laughs) Neither of us knowing what the other was going to do. And then uh, just stared at each other for, I guess, about 30 seconds or so, which seems long enough when you're looking at a bear. (laughs) And, uh, I mean, just decided it wasn't worth trying to kill me for my food and grunted and then uh, turned around and walked away. But uh, a few days later on alms round into the village I went and uh, going around and and, uh, one of the men in the village said that last night a tiger had taken one of the goats in the village and so just uh, you know, just letting you know, venerable <laughs> sir <laughs> okay I said thank you very much, good to know Yeah. Um, so uh, so he said yeah just be careful there's a tiger in the area so that night No, I was meditating as usual, and um, although you you just have a mosquito net, somehow you feel like deludedly safe behind that mosquito net. It feels like as long as I'm behind my mosquito net I'm safe. Uh, But I was meditating there in the dark and and in the distance I could start to hear this a sound of um, uh, the tiger yelps, and it's not like a growl, but more like a, there's a certain sound it makes when it's, I think, either hungry or just eaten, or I'm not sure. <laughs> and uh, I kept getting louder and louder, and I'm like, Oh, this is great! This is just like the stories of you know the forest masters of old, <laughs> where you can sit in the jungle and and um, you know radiate loving kindness and um, you know confront the fear of death and, and uh, wonderful. You know, so it's like I decided, okay, is there any fear coming up? Okay, don't worry about it. Just Radiate loving-kindness. May the tiger be happy. May the tiger be happy. May the tiger be happy. And it kept getting closer. And you could hear the sounds coming. And uh, as it was coming closer, I was kind of going, May the tiger be happy. May the tiger be happy. <laughs> like, and uh, <clears throat> And then I had to admit, some fear was coming up, because I was totally alone, long ways off, there was, somehow my mosquito net was seeming less (laughs) like a wall of defense, yeah, and, um, and it was that the sounds were getting closer, and then suddenly I heard this big crack, a crunch, very close by of you know, they've got bamboo there that's like four inches in diameter and you know it's quite solid stuff, but you know I hear the sound of him or whatever it was, you know just cracking it and then it was silence because he gotten whatever it was gotten close enough to to notice me. So by this time I'm going, May the, <laughs> May the tiger be happy! May the tiger be happy! May the tiger be happy! Yeah, and and, um, you know, just, uh, and, you know, at that point, the intention was, was pure, <laughs> but it um, hadn't really overcome the fear. But then something happened and, you know, right at that time, there was some kind of letting go where uh, it was just like I knew there was nothing I could do and my only defense was certainly not my mosquito net, but my only defense was my mental state. And I knew how sensitive these animals were but really you know that kind of knowledge doesn't do you doesn't really help you much in those situations but what really did help was you know, for some reason just when the mind was pushed into this corner it suddenly just went quiet and and then I actually did feel this uh, feeling of non-fear being at peace with with whatever was going to happen. I Me, mean, rationally, I knew that you know, I didn't know any monks who had actually been eaten by tigers. But emotionally, you know, there's something that happens in your amygdala, which kind of uh, throws a bit of adrenaline into the system, and you say emotionally, you know, it's like well. I don't I don't care if, <laughs> if you if you don't think that there there's not a high percentage of of monks out there who have been eaten by tigers and There's a part of the brain which um, is activated and uh, and is not overcome just through rational thinking or trying to convince ourselves that everything's fine but but somehow could be overcome with dhamma practice and then just taking the refuge in well, may that tiger be happy and whatever you know, I, uh, obviously I didn't get eaten and, uh, and the tiger went off looking for other, probably easier things to eat. But that type of dharma practice is, um, I think is still applicable because we may not experience like flesh and blood, like flesh and blood tigers in our lives, but we may have other things in our lives which have the uh, similar principles. And you know there are times when we we do kind of get uh, pushed into a corner and that's not necessarily a bad thing, but it's it's a challenging position because they say when you go off into the forest like that you either overcome your fear and replace it with Dhamma or you go crazy. And there are some monks who go crazy out there. It's probably more dangerous than the tiger. But there are times in life like that as well, where it's like, well, okay, we're uh, we're out there, uh, exposed, and our refuge is in our dhamma practice. Neither we either it's gonna work or we're gonna go crazy. (laughs) So I think it's good that we're out here in the forest and I think it's good that there's this bear wandering around (laughs) Because we don't know where it is at night, which tent it's attracted to. You may feel very safe in your tent behind that thin (laughs) nylon wall and think it's a valid defense against wild animals. that's why we have a forest tradition, because learning from nature and the experiences of being in nature uh, somehow uh, can be so um, directly beneficial or or, uh, uh, so directly touch our heart, much more than, say, studying and contemplating from the knowledge that we've studied and Sometimes just very simple things out in nature. You know, um, because if you're in a situation like that, then it really is important to be mindful. You know, there's a lot of, of um, encouragement to be mindful all the time. Stay with your meditation object because that's a real defense. It's a real security. i think literally not just in the jungle but anywhere okay. the one of the best securities is sila if you're keeping very pure sila then that has a real power to it and, and certainly beings like wild animals can sense if someone's living a harmless life or not and even though a lot of human beings aren't are probably a lot less sensitive than wild animals, still it's probably one of our best defenses against the various things in life and even better than that is the protection of Samadhi, so some of these old forest masters when they were walking through the forest, you know they were still right there with their meditation all the time, with every step saying. Boo boo do You know, and very aware of what's going on around, but keeping that that uh, that mental state going, because there's real power there and protection and purity. There was this. Um, there was one monk. Uh, Ajahn Poo his name was. Uh, he uh, he was going through the through the forest like that, and and um, very quickly a king cobra had come up. And king cobras are very different than cobras, but king cobras are are very very long. I mean, they can be. Like five, six yards long, quite big diameter. And they're territorial, like normal cobras are you know, very peaceful, relatively peaceful snakes and um, won't bother you if you don't bother them. King cobras tend to be very um, aggressive. And if you come into their territory, they're going to rush up. And um, it's a bit like you know, uh, if you go into a grizzly bear's territory you'll tend to charge and so if you got the snake coming at you they're you know, like um, you know, the sp- speed of a car then uh, it takes a lot of mindfulness just to stay composed and apparently Ajahn Poo was walking and and he was staying with his meditation object and this king cobra came up and wrapped itself <laughs> around him and then had its hood, you know, like at, at head level. And he just kept uh, on with his Bhutto, 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 <laughs> you know, staying with his meditation object through the whole thing. Because if you're going to die, that's the best way to die anyways, <laughs> if you die with your mind in samadhi. With a, a wholesome mind state of samadhi, then uh, you can die peacefully, assured of a good rebirth. But also it seemed to be a, a just very practical um, way of dealing with situations like that. And so even though the snake had come up and, and very aggressively um, approached him and it didn't detect fear or aggression on, on, uh, on his part. So then it just gradually relaxed and kind of went off. And Ajahn Poo just continued on, buto buto, walking through the forest. <laughs> just another day in the jungle. <laughs> and later on he was, he went to bathe in this pond and there was a little hut nearby. And he was going into this pond and this woman came running out of the hut and said, No, not that pond. You can't go into that pond. But it was already too late. And he was up to his waist in there and bathing. And then uh, this big crocodile was coming out. You know, they just kind of come with this force. And um came up and, uh, but for some reason, you know, he couldn't open its mouth. And just kept kind of nudging him. <laughs> <on the side. laughs> <My gosh. laughs> and he was there. He was just staying with his meditation <laughs> object. Butoh, 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 and this crocodile. He was just trying to. Uh, couldn't uh, do anything but nudge him with his nose. Couldn't open up his mouth. I think it was the same Ajahn who. While he was walking through the forest, he had laid down to take a a little nap during the day. he woke up to this feeling of um, something kind of wet on his head. He realized it was a tiger licking his bald head. (laughs) (laughs) And that's why, you know, I I said how important it is to be with your meditation object as soon as you wake up. If you're trained in that, then it's very good, so you wake up and there's a bear licking your scalp and uh, you just think, puto, butoh, So that year that I stayed with Biak, that was, uh, you know, it, it was very beneficial in many ways. And I think, uh, yeah, it, you know, at that time, knowing that Biak could read my mind any time he wanted to, I had to be very careful what I was thinking. And they put me in the hut right next to his hut. So I had to be really careful what I was thinking, and that was great motivation just to, you know, always, always, you know, just be aware of what was coming up in my mind. And if there was an, uh, an unwholesome mind state coming up, then, you know, very quickly uh, not allowing my mind to dwell on that. So it was a lot of right effort going on. You know, right effort is not just trying hard or not just being aware, but actually making the effort to to, um, keep unwholesome states of mind at bay. And if they do arise, then make the effort somehow to release them, let them go, or replace them with wholesome states of mind, and then making the effort to, to bring up wholesome states of mind and strengthen them and cultivate them and make them strong. And naturally, that you know, does take effort. It's not something that we're used to doing. If we're used to just allowing our minds to do whatever, then uh, they're just going to keep doing that. And yeah, there's a certain benefit in just watching and being aware and accepting all mental states not judgmentally as they come and they go, come and go. But another very important aspect of practice, of Dhamma practice, is systematically cultivating wholesome states of mind, just like what we were talking about this morning with the the metta meditation. You know, you're just training and just doing the scales of meditation. may I be happy, may I be happy, and sometimes you don't feel like you're happy, or or you think, well, may this other person be happy, but somehow it doesn't, you know, <laughs> especially if it's the person you've had a, you know, a disagreement with, say, may they be happy, and he's like, right. <laughs> may they be happy in hell. (laughs) And you catch yourself and say, oops, (laughs) that wasn't very Buddhist. (laughs) Or sometimes um, it can just feel like yeah may I be happy, may I experience peace of mind but it feels like it's just going through the motions but that's okay too you know that's that's, doesn't mean that it's wasted time it's like when you're sitting down at a piano and you're just doing scales hours of scales up and down and it feels like you know, what's the purpose of this? This isn't music. But when we do something like metta meditation, we're really developing the intention. And we may be doing the meditation and and thinking, well, sometimes a real feeling of metta comes up, loving kindness, but sometimes it doesn't. And so, if if no real feeling of meta coming up is coming up, then you know it's just a waste of time. Is it just kind of hypocritical? Say no. I mean, there's there's still the intention there, even if it's just towards ourself. Say, well, may I be free from worry, or may I be free from fear? You know, may I be happy? And You know, that can bring up a whole host of other, uh, sometimes opposite feelings coming up into the mind, or just sometimes feel like, yeah, yeah. But the intention is still a very pure one. The intention is still a good one. And that's really what we're developing, because intention is the essence of karma. So even if we don't feel metta right then and there, we can still have that intention, well, may I be happy someday. Or, you know, for other people in our life, um, you know, may they be happy. May they be free from fear. May they experience peace of mind. One of the other meditations that's good to do, in a similar way, is a Forgiveness Meditation. Forgiveness is a a related quality to the ones I was talking about, of loving kindness and compassion. And there isn't a traditional Forgiveness Meditation, but I've kind of made one up, which I'll, I'll go through tomorrow at the Guided Meditation. But forgiveness is a quality which, in many ways, you know, is very central to Buddhist practice. And even in monastic life, for example, we will uh, every time that we uh, leave a monastery, we'll go to the senior person uh, with a tray of candles, incense, and flowers, and we have this little ceremony that we do is called asking for forgiveness even when we haven't done anything wrong or don't think we've done anything wrong or if we're going as a community as a Sangha to visit a senior monk somewhere then we will go through the ceremony of asking for forgiveness and there's a bit of chant that goes with it in Pali but the the meaning of it is a venerable sir, if there's anything that I've done through my actions, through my speech or even mental state that has in any way caused you suffering or pain or discomfort or agitation, whether it was intentional on my part or non-intentional or whether you know, it was something I did, say, in your presence or something I had done behind your back in private. Uh, anything. And, you know, I ask for forgiveness. And then uh, the senior person will, of course, forgive them. It's part of the ceremony. And then also ask for forgiveness. If there's anything that I have done uh, through body speech of mind, intentionally or unintentionally, in public or in private, that has in any way caused you suffering or dukkha, then I ask for your forgiveness. And it's one of these ceremonies that has a, uh, a real practical, useful basis to it, because constantly uh, forgiving and, and uh, starting fresh. Because any time human beings live together, even if they have their intention to try to live as as harmoniously as possible, human beings, being human beings, we tend to get on each other's nerves after a while. and. Um, and even if everyone's trying their best, um, sometimes we just we get irritated by other people, and so uh, having a little ceremony like this is very practical. And in Thailand, for example, sometimes you know people will do that with their parents or their partners, uh, and uh, you know it's you can try it sometime if a. If a even if you don't feel like you've done anything wrong I remember this one woman who had all these issues with her father and you know and it really seemed like it was the father's problem Uh, and she just had so much anger towards her father and our abbot at the time recommended that she go and ask for forgiveness from him which is almost counterintuitive and say, well, I haven't done anything wrong he's caused all the problems but uh, she agreed to do that and somehow it opened up a a door of sensitivity in her father that hadn't been there before one of the famous masters in our tradition is his name is Ajahn Kao and forgiveness was uh, an important part of his practice at certain stages because before he was a monk he had a family, he had a wife, children, and living in a village in Northeast Thailand, and to make enough money he would sometimes have to go to Central Thailand and work as a hired hand and he'd be gone for periods of time, and then he was tipped off by one of his friends that his wife was having an affair and he was a person who had a pretty quick temper. And he decided to find out for himself. So at one point he came back at an unexpected time and was waiting outside uh, his own house, hiding. And then he saw, in fact, that uh, his wife's lover did come up, go into the, the house. and. And he's waiting there outside and he can hear them, you know, what's going on inside the conversation and uh, um, everything. So, uh, he burst in on them. And in in that culture, everyone's got machetes because you use your machete for everything. And so he was in there with his, bursting in with his machete and uh, caught them you know, making love, they were right in the middle of making love, and uh, burst in on them and put his knee on his or her back, I'm not sure, and uh, held his machete up and was about to run them through, and get them both at once. <clears throat> and at that point he he uh, had a moment of mindfulness, <laughs> fortunately for all of them, and he decided, well, he just reflected, well, they're the ones who are making the bad karma in doing this, and if I run them through, then I'm going to be making even more bad karma. that's going to lead to my own suffering. So even though I feel like they kind of deserve this, nah, maybe there's a better alternative. So he still held them there with <laughs> with the machete, and... Um, but then start started yelling out, and, and um, all the different houses in the villages are very close and very thin walls, so he started yelling out uh, for everyone to come out. And so, kind of a group of the neighbors gathered in the house, and um, just made this declaration that, okay, he's giving up uh, his wife. Yeah, you know, if uh, so allowing, uh, you know, if they want to be together, then then he's going to allow that, and uh, he just want to, to make a public declaration that he was going to be a monk, and he was going to renounce everything. But, you know, that's maybe not the the ideal circumstances <laughs> for deciding to take up a life of dhamma practice. However, um, he was just so fed up at that point that he decided, okay, I'm just going to go be a monk. So he did. And he ordained in the local village and then eventually went and stayed with um, the great meditation master Ajahn Mun. Ajahn Mun was considered uh, the modern-day father of the Thai forest tradition. He was Ajahn Chah's teacher as well. So he stayed with Ajahn Manfram was his disciple for many years and was part of the early generation of disciples and through his dedication to practice and energy and enthusiasm and sincerity he was able to eventually realize the highest fruits of of, uh, dharma practice and realized full liberation. And then when in later years when he would reflect back upon his former wife and her lover, then He would bow down in gratitude, because if it wasn't for them, then he would have never been motivated to follow the life of the Dhamma, and would have never experienced that, the great fruits and peace and happiness from Dhamma practice. Enough stories for tonight.